Welcome to the Eucharist Podcast with Wyoming Catholic College, responding to the call for Eucharistic renewal by sharing wisdom in God's country. I'm Jeremy Holmes, Academic Dean at Wyoming Catholic College. And I'm Kyle Washett, its President, and welcome to this episode. We've been talking about how the body of Christ is really present in the Eucharist and what that phrase means. When people think about the body of Christ being, in fact, on the altar, they could think about Eucharistic miracles in which the the host visibly transforms into a piece of human flesh. And one could have the reaction, wow, wouldn't it be cool if I could see that? You know, that, that would feel like the real experience of Christ being there on the altar in the flesh. So we thought we'd take an episode to talk about Eucharistic miracles, how they relate to the doctrine of transubstantiation and all the work we've been doing so far in this podcast series, and what we should think about them. Now, recently I uh, listened to a, a wonderful presentation by... Father Spitzer, on recent Eucharistic miracles, and uh, he was uh, describing, for example, with with marvelous slides, um, a miracle in the late 90s that happened in Buenos Aires, actually um, under the uh, Bergoglio, the, f- the future Pope Francis, uh, he, he, he was the prelate who, who oversaw the investigation of this one. And what happened was this. Someone was walking out the back of the church one day, and saw that a host had been dropped on the ground. Now, why that happened, nobody knows. Was someone attempting to steal a host? Uh, was there a child who was negligent? Nobody knows. But but they pick up this host, and it's kind of dirty. Uh, and so this, this person takes it to the priest, and the priest follows a standard protocol, puts, puts the host in water so that it will eventually dissolve, and puts the, the water with the host in it, the cup of water into the tabernacle to keep it safe, and we're just going to wait out, and, and, and then eventually we can dispose of this in a respectful manner. Stays there for about a month. And when they bring the water out again, not only has the host not dissolved, which is what they were anticipating as the outcome, there's some kind of growth on the host. And when they look closely, it's it. Like, you know, is it some kind of weird mold or something? No, it turns out to be flesh growing out of the host. Well, at this point, they felt like they needed to uh, report this to the to the relevant authorities and and have an investigation. And so um, they brought this to uh, to their superiors, uh, who put them in touch with a scientist who would. Um, uh, who took a look at it, and the scientists could quickly see, oh, this is flesh from a human heart. But it's weird because it's growing out of a piece of bread. So they they, just, they decide upon a formal investigation of this. And um, that there, there's a scientist who's actually not a believer, you know, set up to do the investigation. And and they just, and he makes the decision to just put the water back in storage for a long time. And actually some years go by. Bring it back out. The host is still not dissolved. And you've still got this 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 heart tissue 
growing out of the host. And so they take a, a little slice of it and examine it. And under the microscope, they see living white blood cells doing their thing inside this tissue. And they're just freaked out because this is not only is this not in contact with a living body, it hasn't been in contact with anything for years. It's just been in a cup of water. And, um, so, um, so you know, the, 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 as you can imagine, in the aftermath of this, the unbelieving scientist is, is asking himself whether he needs to revisit his worldview. Um, and uh, this, this was related to another Eucharistic miracle in Tixla, uh, in the same region um, that took place within the next decade. Uh, in this case, there was a, a, a woman was receiving hosts into her picks to take communion to, to the infirm and so on. And uh, she looks down into her picks and there's a little dimple in one of the hosts. And in that little dimple, there's what looks like flesh that's bleeding. And she immediately shows it to the priest who's been handing their host and saying, like, there, there's a bleeding host here. I don't know what to do with this, <laughs> you know? And, and he immediately says, oh, well, okay, this one, we'll put this one back in the tabernacle. We need to go take care of the sick people. We'll, we'll deal with this later. So uh, they circle back later and open up the tabernacle. And yep, it's still there. There's this little dimple of flesh in the host and it's, has bled even more. Uh, so they, uh, you know, as was the case in Buenos Aires, say, this is above us. They, they take it to the superiors. The superiors set up a, a um, scientific investigation. <clears throat> and this time, the, the investigator uh, chooses to have a tiny sample of the flesh examined by a scientist who doesn't know the background of where it's coming from. He just receives a sample on the slide to look at under the microscope and test. And uh, and when he does, he sees not only active white blood cells, active red blood cells doing their thing. He sees, you know, processes of life going on in this flesh. And he thinks to himself, wow, this must be the freshest tissue sample ever to enter my lab. I mean, did they get this from a from, from a body just hours before I saw it, but that doesn't seem possible because they mailed it to me. And so he's, he's actually kind of in a quandary because he, the tissue just looks too fresh for what he knows about how he got it. And so oh, he inquires and they, and when they tell him this actually came from a Eucharistic host, he, he's, he can't get over it. Like, no, no, this is not possible, right? This is not possible. And they, um, they, they, they store it again, look at it again, like five years later, it's continuing to bleed, um, blood of, uh, you know, blood type AB, same as the shroud of Turin. Um, and the, the, the guy who was doing the investigation of this writes a book. I mean, it's, it, people are blown away. Um, so you can see why, uh, people are very excited about Eucharistic miracles. Yes. It's, you know, when you talk about this is really the body of Christ, and then you're looking at heart tissue that seems living, and, you know, and as they get into the details, they can even say, this heart tissue is from someone who 
was badly wounded. You can tell because of this and this, right? And, and, and uh, you know, you can say, wow, this is, you know, this is the coolest thing ever. This, um, this would really restore my faith in the Eucharist as really the body of Christ, right? That would be sort of your, your, your first reaction. Right. And, and these are not, of course, these are the recent Eucharistic miracles, but there have been miracles like these since what, at least the seventh century, eighth century? Since the eighth century. That's right. Yeah. And, and uh, going back a long way and um, the, you know, as in this presentation that I had listened to, uh, Father Spitzer had said, uh, he just wanted to focus on the, the most recent ones because they're still so accessible that you know the people who investigated them are around. the 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 the, the lab reports are publicly available. Whereas you know you can't get the lab reports from the eighth century, right? right. Though though the miracle in the eighth century, the one that I'm most familiar with is the miracle of Lanciano. That's right. Priest celebrating there, it uh, they celebrates the mass. The the host turns into flesh and the chalice turns into blood, and they in the 1970s do a study on this which is already amazing that from the 8th century until the 1970s, this flesh and blood have not completely decomposed or ossified or anything else, right. right? And they study it. The same things emerge, right? This is, you know, the heart flesh. This is AB uh, blood type, same as the Shroud of Turin. This is all of these things. And I remember uh, going to Lanciano for adoration and, and we're there and just this incredible moment and all of all of us are gathered and we're praying. And one of the uh, people with us was a Byzantine priest. I'm thinking, I have I have experienced like real adoration. I have really seen the heart of God. This is amazing. Which is an interesting thing compared to what we've been talking about before. But we'll get back to that. But we come out and the priest comes out and he says, well, I don't know what that was, but it wasn't the Eucharist. What? What, what, do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? Isn't that the super? <laughs> this is this is actually the real miracle. In some ways, in my in my young mind, all of the other Eucharistic consecrations are just approximating this. This is the real thing. This is really where we have the body of Christ. It's like no. Yeah. So I wonder if all that work we've been doing with the technical speak of the church, right? With substance and accidents and transubstantiation and all these words we've been using can help us break into that priest's question. Right. What to do? Because I think that the layer one with Eucharistic miracles is the first reaction we all have, which is tremendous confirmation of faith. It seems clear that God offers these miracles to strengthen the faith of those whose faith needs strengthened. That's, that's absolutely the case, right? That, that's And that's what all of the studies seem to attest, and what all the reasons for it is. Very often, it's someone who doesn't have a belief in the Eucharist, who is celebrating Mass or witnessing the consecration or something, and this happens to let them know, oh no, there is something really miraculous going on with the Eucharist. Now, in fact, you were mentioning to me um, a line from a Russian um, liturgical Right, so the, the, the instruction book on how to handle Eucharistic miracles when they happen, right, uh, which is a, already a marvelous fact. But but yeah, t- t- tell tell us about that line. Right, so so again, like uh, so, in the, the for the Russian Orthodox, they have this guideline about various accidents that can occur during the celebration of the Eucharist, and one of the accidents that can occur is well, what happens if all of a sudden while you're consecrating the Eucharist, it ceases to be. The, under the appearance of bread and comes under, they say, either under the appearance of flesh 
or the appearance of blood or the appearance of an infant. Oops. Yeah. I mean, if you were a priest and you looked down into your, uh, under the patent and there's an infant lying in the patent or a, a chunk of human flesh, I can imagine that at this point you were hoping that the liturgical books had covered this moment. But And thankfully the Russians <laughs> they, have. They, they have. As it notes, right, if, you, if you have enough presence of mind at that moment to recall what you read in seminary, you're, you're in good shape. Um, but what they say is, well, you have to see whether this is a permanent change or not a permanent change. If this is a temporary change, you just sort of wait. Once the Eucharist returns under its normal aspect, you continue celebrating. So the when Eucharist. it looks like bread again, you're fine. We go ahead. Right. But if as you're waiting, and it makes sense that there's going to be some significant time of pausing and waiting, if all of a sudden an infant or flesh appears out there on the altar, you're going to wait and probably stand in adoration while you figure out what am I doing. But if after a certain amount of time, Unfortunately, the Russians do not specify what this amount is. But after a certain amount of time, it becomes clear this is going to be a permanent miracle. Then they say you have to start over. You have to reconsecrate. Because this miracle was done for the to help those in their unbelief or some related difficulty and has ceased to be the body and blood of our Lord. Yeah, now, a, a sign that... We're dealing with something a little bit different than just the Eucharist under some other appearance. Is that we treat it differently, right? We 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 eat the Eucharist, but there there's never a time when 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 one of these miracles happens and it turns into human flesh or uh, an infant, and then and then we eat it. Right, right. No, that clearly the immediate reaction. And that this is sort of indicated by the Russian book is is adoration. Whenever this happens, you stand and kneel or bow in adoration before this miracle. And then, if you're in the Western liturgical tradition, you can put the host in a monstrance and mm -hmm. you have it there to reverence and worship. Uh, if, um, but if it returns back to its regular species, then of course you can receive communion. But the the point of the Eucharist, the the Eucharistic eating is clearly stopped by the Eucharistic miracle. Uh, just as a side note, the Russians are not, is not the last word on this. Aquinas thinks that this is still the Eucharist, even though, again, he agrees you are not to eat a Eucharistic miracle. That the goal of the Eucharistic miracle is adoration to affect faith in the miracle that is the Eucharist. Hey, let's, let's break into the difference between what you just called the miracle that is the Eucharist and what we commonly call Eucharistic miracles, right? So uh, what we had said about the miracle that is the Eucharist is that the appearances of bread and wine remain, even after the consecration, supported in existence by God at, at, by a miracle, and that those appearances now no longer point to the substance of bread, which is gone, but point rather to the very body of Christ. But then we spent a while asking childlike questions to bring out that the appearances of the bread and of the wine, while they put us in touch and they, 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 may, they bring us into immediate contact with the body and blood of Christ, they are, they are, those appearances don't properly belong to the substance of Christ's body, Right, so Christ did not become um, little bitty in order to fit into a host. Right, if we break the host in half, we have not just broken Jesus's, you know, 
we, Jesus in heaven has not just been snapped in half, right? That rather, um, you know, the, I think the, the comparison we used was that, you know, if you had a portal, like a sort of window or gateway onto another dimension, you could break the portal in half. And you're not breaking the other dimension in, in half. You're just, now you have two portals where before you had one, right? So if you, if you receive half the host, you receive the whole Jesus, because even though the appearances have been broken in half, Jesus has not. And so we, 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 we've spent an episode emphasizing these appearances are not uh, the appearances that properly belong to Jesus's body, which still has its own appearances in heaven. Now, in one of these uh, Eucharistic miracles where you have the appearances of flesh, right, um, we, we have to remember that even in this case, the, the appearances or the accidents of flesh are not the appearances or the accidents that that belong immediately to Christ. Right. So Christ has not lost a piece of flesh for the Eucharistic miracle of Lanciano to take place. Uh, nor is Christ's flesh in heaven actively bleeding, and a portion of it's been removed and is actively bleeding now at this miraculous uh, modern miracle of the Eucharist. That's not what's going on. No, in fact, ju just as with the Eucharist that we experience every day, there are appearances, well, of bread and wine um, that that represent to us and put us in touch with the real body of Christ. So we have here appearances of flesh and blood that represent and put us in touch with the actual the the, the actual body of Christ. Um, but but the appearances are 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 representations, signs, and, and portals for us. Right, and, and what's clear there is that they're a, not the same kind of representation as the bread and wine of the normal Eucharistic consecration because there's two stages in a Eucharistic consecration normally. There's the consecration itself, at whatever point that happens, and our looking upon the consecrated elements, uh, upon the body and blood of our Lord and worshiping. That happens. And then, having had that moment, we also, so in the Byzantine rite, even explicitly make an act of faith that this is explicitly the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask for mercy to receive it, like the prophet Isaiah, as we stand here in heaven. And we go and eat it, and we enter into communion with it. Clearly, in a Eucharistic miracle, that second half doesn't happen. The only the first happens. And let's, at least for a moment, let's let's get into the mindset of what would be going on if we did eat these Eucharistic miracles, right? The um, is that the way you would greet Jesus if you met him in heaven, right? You know, the, he 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 comes up to you, your Savior and your God, and you and 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 you you fall upon him with your teeth to to bite chunks out of him that. That is a, an entirely different mindset than, than the way in which we approach the, the Eucharist itself, right? So when, when St. Augustine is commenting on John chapter 6, you know, the wonderful Eucharistic discourse um, where Jesus says, um, yeah, well, first he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, you don't have any life in you. And, and then when people are upset, he says, the flesh avails nothing. It's, this, it's the spirit that gives life. And, and Augustine comments that if you come to the Eucharist the way you would go to the meat market, right? You, you, you just think you're dealing with slabs of flesh. Um, 
then then you need to recalibrate yourself. This is not, uh, you're not actually grinding Jesus up with your teeth as though he's, he's turning into little bits as you chew. No, um, this is sacramental eating. It, we have, we are really in contact with the body of Christ, um, but not through his own surface, not through his own color, not through his own texture. And as we grind up that surface and that color and that texture in our mouths, Jesus is not is is not physically wounded, right? There's a there's a there's a kind of spiritual eating that's going on here, not not the kind of eating that you that you would do to a hunk of flesh. So when you have something in front of you that looks like a hunk of flesh, to to approach and eat, and, and eat it would would suggest the wrong mindset, right? <laughs> you missed you missed what the symbol is supposed to be telling you. Right, that you do not see the flesh of Jesus and think, "Oh, that looks tasty." You see the flesh of Jesus and should think, "That's really our Lord." That's what the reaction is supposed to be there. Which also means I wanted to hit a point that you said about spiritual eating. Like that's not a term. Like, oh, it's just spiritual eating, as if this is a well-recognized term. Uh, right. It's it's it's, it's kind of tricky, right? Because it's it, it sounds like oh, so it's you know they're not really with the, no, it's a spiritual eating of the body. Right. It is it is real eating, and maybe we think about it like this: when you eat something, what's the point of it? Well, the point of it is that it becomes part of you, right? You eat that cheeseburger, and it becomes part of your person, in some sense, maybe even adding some heft to your to your waistline. So when we talk about spiritual eating, we're asking, well, what, what are we trying to indicate? Well, we're not indicating that we've destroyed the person of Christ and made him part of my waistline, heaven forbid, right? That blasphemously suggested. Right. But there is still a merging of two things. Yes. Right? There, There is still a becoming one with that which you eat. Now, as St. Augustine famously observes, right, it, it's not that we make Christ into us, but that in the Eucharist, he brings us into him. Right, but but there is a union of us with him that is affected in the sign of that eating. It's like um, it's like a, a sign that's far more intimate than any kiss could be. Right, if you can imagine, you know, a child saying to his mother, "I love you so much, I want to eat you all up." It, it, it's that. It's this. This. I. I. I want to be so one with you. I want to be one with you beyond all the possibilities. Except that here, it's possible. So so that we see then the response to the Eucharist, it's actually helpful with the Eucharistic miracles to see there's a twofold response to the Eucharist we're supposed to have. On the one hand, we're supposed to have the response of faith, the response of, I really believe that I'm like Isaiah. I see myself standing here in the courtyard of heaven and earth uh, on this on this junction of these two realities here before Christ, really present before me, that act of faith. And in a certain sense, that's something that happens inside my mind. It's I'm, I'm receiving the truth and accepting it in the depths of my soul. And that can happen in the witness of the Eucharistic miracle. But the second step of the Eucharist is intended for this profound intimacy, this profound communion that I, in love, go out of myself into my beloved who is intensely present to me in his personal substance, in himself as Jesus Christ. And that is affected by eating. Yeah, and a kind of physical intimacy that's just not possible between just sort of two bodies in our dimension. It's only possible in, in the case where we have, and we keep going back to this, transubstantiation, in the case where 
where the substance of the bread has become the substance of Christ's body, where the thing that you're touching when you touch the appearances of bread is, is now no longer the, the bread, but the thing itself is the very substance of Christ's body. In, in that case, we can have a, a, an even more intimate union than is, than, than is possible physically between two bodies in any normal circumstance. Um, and, and that's the purpose of transubstantiation, is to make that intimacy possible. And so the Eucharistic miracle, whether or not we slide with Thomas Aquinas, who says that the Eucharistic miracle is a miracle on top of the miracle of transubstantiation, or whether we side with what's seemingly evidenced by the Russian tradition and by the Byzantine priest I know, that, oh, it's a miracle that replaces the miracle of transubstantiation to prepare you to better receive. We can let theologians decide that. Sure, yeah. they, they can argue about that. But what's beautiful about the Eucharistic miracles is it does, in either event, let us know what the miracle of transubstantiation is for. It's to move us to faith and to put us into a communion that's only possible by the miracle of transubstantiation. And so do I wish that a Eucharistic miracle happened every time we had Mass? Actually, no. Right. Because the miracles witnessed to what is even better than themselves, even more wonderful than themselves, the Eucharist that we receive at every liturgy. Thank you for listening to the Eucharistic Podcast at Wyoming Catholic College. To learn more about Wyoming Catholic College, visit wyomingcatholic.edu.